Hello and welcome to the Emotion of Work podcast where we take a deep dive into the human condition. Now, as the regular listener will know, I am exceptionally interested in the interplay between identity, which includes both how we see us, how we see ourselves and how other people see us. And I'm interested in the negotiations that take place and all of the emotions that come with them. And identity and emotion have we featured on the podcast before with Professor Dawn Archer in episode 12, Jessica Robles in episode 10, Georgian Isaac in episode 5, and SG Lenny in episode 2. Oh, yes, and with me in episode 24. And today we're going to look more specifically into the emotion of shame. Um, so we, I don't think we've ever really taken a deep dive into a particular emotion so far. So we're going to go into shame into the podcast today. And that's going to link to some other episodes that we've got coming up. So I'm going to, we've got another guest in the pipeline um, where we're going to talk a, a bit more about shame as well. So enough from me. Let's get our guest on the air. So I'd like to welcome to the podcast, podcast, try that one again. I'd like to welcome to the podcast, Francesca Cardona. Hi, Francesca. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Phil. Hi. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. I'm really, really excited to have you on as a guest. Thank you. And as the as per usual for this podcast, again, as the regular listener will know, we always open with an unexpected yet innocuous question. So my uh, question for you, Francesca, inspired by um, what's happening been happening outside me over the last few days, is what does winter mean for you? Um as you say, is a very special winter and, um, you know, means waiting, to be honest, okay. waiting yeah. for the summer, waiting for uh, this pandemic to uh, be less uh, um, uh, bad on all of us, uh, waiting for a vaccine, waiting for warm weather where I can use my garden and uh, mm. more and waiting to go to Italy. I hope to go in the, in the spring when I will be vaccinated. Okay, wonderful. And, and so the, uh, I, oh, I'm really fascinated by that idea of waiting. Um, I've never thought about winter and, and waiting before, uh, kind of waiting for the spring or waiting for things um, to come back together. Because winter for me, I, I associate with things being, um, almost kind of stationary or, or maybe in stasis there's like it's a it's a um it's a moment for pause and and, and where things maybe slow down a little I, in, in, I suppose that goes against what I've said and what I've said off air when we said hello to each other because I've had a manic morning uh, before getting together to record the podcast today but I suppose yeah when I look out on my garden I, I see you know things almost in stasis like they don't really move they don't grow they don't you know once the leaves fall off the trees it just kind of stays stationary but maybe that's because they're waiting for the spring as well maybe yes i think my bulbs that i put in a big pot the other day are also waiting for a bit of warm weather as well <laughs> and if, if i take that theme of of waiting then if that's all right so um one of the things that we talked about um uh, before, so as, as regular listeners will know, before um, I record the podcast, I always have a, a call and a, and a chat with the guest before we get on, um, we get online. And one of the things that you mentioned um, was about uh, using emotions as evidence. And because, you know, it's me and, and I'm fascinated by emotion and I run a, you know, my business and podcast is all about it. I, I really loved that idea. And, and, I, and I'm linking that with waiting. 
because um, sometimes I think it can be hard to, um, uh, or it can be not it can be hard. It can be easy to take things at face value without necessarily looking at what's going on at a deeper level, and that's where the the emotion aspect could come in. Um, so when you mentioned about using emotions as evidence, can you tell me a bit more about that, Francesca? Because I really loved that that turn of phrase. Sure. I think is one, I would say, of the key uh, tools in my trade, um, which is about uh, being in touch with emotion um, mm. in my work with organization, with uh, individuals. And, uh, and the way I, I use the terms is connected to the idea of uh, emotion uh, not just uh, in terms of emotional intelligence that we acknowledge that our emotions in organization, all of us, we experience strong, sometimes very difficult emotion, but is uh, the sense emotion can offer you some uh, intelligence about a situation and a challenge um, in a sort of detective sense. I think if I'm correct, mm. detective have uh, um, what they call the golden hour when they go to a you know sort of a, a crime scene and they look at it and they try to sort of in a way engage with the feeling that is there trying to see what should be there what is not there and and that's how they start their investigation <laughs> um, so i always feel in sort of my work that beginnings are really important and really significant. So uh, we often say with my colleague, everything mm. is there at the beginning if we're able to see it. And beginnings start with all the you know, initial emotion we experience in a situation. Um, uh, and could, we, we should wonder why we feel encountering a group or someone um, feeling lethargic or feeling anxious or feeling impatient. This is a sign of a dynamic that is going on under the surface. Uh, oh, there, there are some wonderful, uh, uh, I must compliment you on your ability to turn a phrase. Um, that was, there are some lovely phrases in there. Um, and one I'd like to go back to, if that's okay, is the, um, you said in the beginning, everything is there. And so in, in, in the work that you do then, where, where is the beginning often? Or where does, where does the beginning happen? Is that when, um, so I, like in my head, I'm thinking is it could be when like you have a, a first meeting with a client or a first meeting with a, with a team within a client organization. What, what, what would be the beginning for, for you in the work that you do? Literally, the beginning is, um, is the first uh, contest. Could hmm. be by an email, could be a telephone call, and uh, that already give you some clues about how the person or the team or the leader engage with you. And then, of course, when you go into a you know building to meet people, you know also the building in a way speaks, and the way a room is arranged, the way people welcome or don't welcome you. Mm. Uh, they you, you feel maybe ignored you arrive and nobody knows that you are respected or there is a very warm welcome so all of that 
And of course, it's not just observing what's happening there, but also what is your reaction to uh, the individual, to the environment, to the situation. So do, I, do you feel intimidated? Do you feel uh, you know, too close to the person? Uh, do you feel curious? Do you feel, oh gosh, this is quite boring. I'm not sure if I want to do this. <laughs> so all of this. And um, I think I, you were talking about expression. Uh, is a, a, a mentor of mine, and he's now dead, it was a lovely man called Harold Bridger. And mm -hmm. he was um, an organizational consultant and a psychoanalyst. And he always talked about listening to the music behind the words. So something like when you listen to um, you know, song or an opera, mm -hmm. maybe in a language you don't know. But if is, let's say the music is good, um, you can uh, tune in into the main message that uh, the music and the uh, whoever has composed it uh, um, uh, want to um, convey to you. So you don't have to understand all the words and i think i try not always successfully of course but mm. i try to engage with the music um, and the noises uh, of organizations and uh, um, and you can link this idea with the concept that um, is used in psychoanalysis which is the counter transference which is when you as a therapist um, in a way have a um, uh, experience some emotions that right. come from the client or from the patient in this case. Mm. So it's a sort of connected idea. So if it's okay, I'd like to, to stick with that idea for a moment in, in, in the, uh, the listening to the music behind the words. And, uh, and in a way, I'd like to try and get a bit practical with it, if that's okay. Because I think it might be interesting to, to hear how you do that. You know, so the, because one of the, the one, I, I say that because there's a lot of things that, um, that I know I, I do and in the past have done that have been quite intuitive. And when I've then reflected on or thought about what is it that I'm actually doing? What is it that I'm noticing? What is it that I'm picking up on? Or you know, what what, what am I doing that's allowing me to 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 be that detective or to hear the music behind the words? So um, yeah, I, I guess I'm curious about that a little bit more if I can. What do you what what strategies do you use to help you hit, listen to the music behind the words? Yes, I think obviously there isn't a recipe is mm -hmm. is a question i think of a state of mind and i think one thing that i really try to apply is not to look for solution and sort of okay. in a way accepting that i don't know accepting i'm quite ignorant of a situation and um uh trying not to um you know give immediate answer, even if the team or the client, they're, they're quite eager to take you in that direction, to ask for advice. I'm not saying you shouldn't give advice at some point. Mm. I think to immerse yourself, I did anthropology school, immerse yourself in a situation, see what I'm understanding. And of course, try to 
um, you know, uh, avoid prejudice. So that's why it's important in a way you, that you know enough of the organization to have some basic understanding. But I think sometimes if you know too much, you already come inevitably with prejudice. So to be quite fresh and try to not to immediately come to conclusion or think, oh, they should do this, they should do the other, but really keeping an open mind. And that requires a lot of um, discipline and also try not to sanitize some of the emotions that you might experience because you might want to say, oh, you know, just forget what I'm feeling at the moment. No, that can be um, an indication of something that is going on in that particular situation, in that particular team, and then using it to try to understand what is going on and eventually what the client needs and what might help him or them to, um, you know, uh, feel better about the situation, find some kind of step forward to, towards some changes, address maybe some traumatic event that they have had to face and so on. Um, a lot of the organization I work with are, uh, not all, but are in the public sector. And of course, mm. you know, as we know, and health service, you know, the the challenge of the task is huge and that has an effect inevitably on, on the people who work in, in those uh, settings. Yeah, definitely. And, um, so you, and when you mentioned it earlier, that was another area that got my attention around, well, there were two things. So one was about noticing what isn't there um, and I'll come back to that one in, in a moment, if I, if I may. It was the bit around noticing how it affects you, you know, and, and how being in a certain environment or being in a certain situation or being present in a certain meeting, you know, noticing how that affects you. And, and again, I like what you said about not sanitizing yourself in terms of saying, you know, well, that you know, I shouldn't be feeling that or that's not OK to feel that and, and noticing because it's a it, it, that, uh, that feeling or that sensation is, a, is an important point of information, if nothing else, for me. Um, the, the bit I've, I think I, I would say I've fallen foul of in the past is um, I've assumed that because I felt a particular way other people or maybe everybody else in that situation has felt the same way that I have. Um, so that was that's a lesson I've learned over time that you know, it's important to notice how I feel, but also it's important to remember that that's just how I feel. It isn't necessarily how um, how everybody else feels. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean a small example is um, that comes to mind is someone who got in touch with me and I felt, uh, um, you know, for some coaching and I felt really grilled in terms of my qualification and my background, my experience. I wonder if it seemed unnecessary. I, you know, she had my name through the chief executive of her organization. So, mm -hmm. you know, I expected that um, that would be something uh, enough but then and i felt quite annoyed <laughs> as a result okay. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, and then i realized that when i finally saw her that she was projecting into me what was her experience in the organization that despite her training and qualification she felt very much sidelined by the, her boss and felt actually very much lacking of confidence. Mm. 
Mm. So the fact that I sort of acknowledged that feeling of me on annoyance, but also noticed that she was grilling me, was quite helpful when we had to explore why she found herself in that position, what was happening in the organization, and, and so on. Mm. Um, okay. Um, so I, I, I said just now that I would that I wanted to pick up on the um, on the noticing the things that aren't there, but I think I want to put that on the, on a little kind of uh, I want to put I want to park that for a moment um, and, and stick with the example that you just gave there because I think that that links into this into the title of this podcast then about you know looking at shame um, in particular. Um, and because one of the things that you talk about in your book is you make a distinction between kind of organizational and personal shame, which I thought was a, a really uh, was a really interesting distinction to be made. So I was wondering if you could tell me a, a bit more. Oh, sorry, I, I, I was thinking I should probably say that. Um, so you've uh, your book is called Work Matters. Um, and, and within that, then it's talking about a lot of the experience that you've had in the consultancy work that you do. Is that right? Would that be a good summary of the book? Yes, absolutely. There's a lot yeah. of stories about my work with uh, uh, clients, with teams, uh, leaders, uh, individuals. Yeah. And, and I think that's wonderful because I think sometimes the, what, what often I, I read sometimes is the more of the theoretical or the uh, you know that some of the more the conceptual ideas that should that sit behind it and what I really enjoyed about reading your book was the the narrative aspect of it and the storytelling aspect of it um so I, I felt like I should give that context before I dive into the question of in your book you say I thought I should, oh, I should probably tell the listener what the um what the broader context is and and then in your book then you talk about organizational and personal shame which I thought was an interesting distinction could you tell me a bit more about kind of what sits behind that Sure. I mean, I think actually the two are linked. Okay. I think, uh, shame often affects the organization and the individual. So I always think that the possibility of shame often lead organization to act too quickly and get rid of some, someone, so the bad apple, mm. without thinking enough. But also the individual who feels shameful because feels that uh, he or she has been so seen as doing something wrong or has been experienced as someone not competent enough. And then that, of course, sometimes leads to a collapse of confidence and competence. And that I've seen it a lot. And I must say, I always link, or often link, a lot to what I experience with clients, with my own experience, because I also, I'm sure, uh, Phil, you might have sometimes experienced shame in a situation. I remember that I was dropped I mean, many years ago mm. from a course, where I, leadership course, where I was teaching. Quite suddenly, I didn't understand why it happened. And I thought it was quite unfair and badly managed. And I felt, despite I felt that, I felt still quite ashamed and exposed. And I think that gave me a clue um, later on to engage with the issue of shame with individuals and organization. I felt more tuned in and often is the case if you have an insight into your own reaction to a situation that you might feel shameful or other situation, you of course are much more able to link with your client's experience and situation. And um, you know, feeling of failure 
can evoke very primitive feelings of um, um, and uh, uh, strong emotions. Mm. And that could be also linked, of course, to individuals' background, their own personal history, their mm. own vulnerabilities, and also is linked to organizations who are not well-functioning. So I think the, uh, sometimes if you've got the combination of an individual who is, let's say, a bit more vulnerable, has got a complex personal history and an organization is quite um, dysfunctional, is the perfect storm for, um, um, let's say, disaster. Yeah. Um, one of the, so you're absolutely right, you know, that there have been times in the workplace when I've in my both in the workplace when I was employed and and since then um you know where, where I've been ashamed of um you know, things that have happened or mistakes that I've made um you know what, uh, so I, one of those was when I was quite young so I was 20 and, and I did something in in a in a job that I had where I really should have been fired for, for what I did um and I wasn't thankfully which was uh, which was a bonus but the uh, the uh, the, the shame in for, for me in that one initially kind of translated into anger and, and really angry at myself for the mistake that I'd made um and it was you know a, a, a proper schoolboy error you know it was a it was a, an easily preventable mistake that I'd made um and was a mistake where you know definitely should have been fired for what I did um and and that, that yeah I then got very angry angry at myself angry at the situation um and then that anger kind of then fueled a real uh, drive and a, and a thirst for understanding more about emotions because my mistake was I let uh, I, I was really angry at somebody and I and I voiced that anger in a way that was quite hurtful um uh and and, and I was very ashamed of the way that I did it. Um, it, it certainly kind of then started me on a, a quest, as it were, to understand more about emotions and what you know how they work and how they affect people and what they do and how they do it. Because um, yeah, the, the the I guess the degree of you know shame then was a huge driver for the for other emotions then that, that took me on the quest to where I am now. I suppose in a way. Yes, no, I know. I I can imagine. And I think is, you know, sometimes is, is the possibility of exploring it, understanding where it comes from. Eh? And um, I, um, there's a colleague of mine called, uh, um, not colleague, colleague, but someone in my, working in my field called Paul Hoggett, who mm. makes a distinction between what he called depressive shame and paranoid shame. Um, and I think the idea of the depressive shame is, in a way, is a quite healthy emotion because you know, we can learn from having made a, uh, um, a mistake, from our disappointment, and we are sort of more open to resolve what has gone wrong and meets, you know, um, our goals. Well, paranoid shame is a much more uh, corrosive uh, sense of humiliation where mm. um, we feel we're not good enough, so it's all or nothing, and um, and so we feel quite useless, uh, uselessness. And um, uh, I think uh, you know one of the I think the, the intervention that I try to make when I am faced with clients that bring 
um, you know, difficult situation where they may be, maybe some of their uh, mistake have been exposed or they've been promised something that hasn't happened and they feel, um, you know, not recognized and, and, and uh, shameful because, um, you know, uh, everybody expected them, for example, to get a promotion or something like this. Mm. Try to help them to move into what um, sort of this de depressive shame position, which is more in terms, okay, this has happened, it's not a tragedy, is something that you can find way of understanding and get better at it, rather than, you know, um, and I, either blaming someone else, which is often mm -hmm. the tendency, you know, they've got a very bad boss or terrible organization, so it's all their fault. It's never completely their fault. It's always a combination of the two. Or the, the despair and the wish of giving everything up. You know, I can't stay here. That's terrible. And, you know, I, I have to sort of disappear. And, and it's, it's, it gets very polarized. Well, the, the, the attempt to say, what is your part? What is the organizational part? What can you do about it? But sometimes it takes a long time to help a person to uh, get there. Mm. Yeah, because you use the example of Joe in your book, don't you? The, the as for someone who um, yeah, was was promised a new role, um, but then was passed over, um, and the the trying to, to shift them from that depressive shame, um, sorry, from the paranoid shame uh, aspect to the depressive shame aspect. Yes, and and it, that was an amazing um, example because this was someone who, on the whole, um, you know, was. Um, well positioned, I was quite senior, and uh, you know, uh, and uh, felt very part, very much part of the organization, um, almost a surrogate family, and mm. uh, and then this happened, and uh, he felt so humiliated because everybody expected him to get the role, but in a in an excessive way. And then you can see that there was, in a way, the combination of his personal history. He had a quite complex background. So in some way, there was some feeling that despite his success, it was still a bit of an imposter. So that in a way, and that incident, you know, made it much more powerful, the feeling that I shouldn't be here. You know, mm. I'm not uh, really worth what I, I thought I was. And then was also, this was also combined with the organization was very competitive, was very competitive uh, and at some, to some degree quite ruthless. Mm. So in a way, as I was saying earlier, it was a bit of a perfect storm. And sometimes, you know, the personal organizational I mean, in this case, not organizational shame, but you know, uh, you can't just look at an individual. You have to look more broadly um, at uh, uh, that is also a systemic issue sometimes. So it's not just the individual who might not be good enough, or, but there is also a culture of the organization that contribute to a difficult situation. Yeah, definitely. And, and, and I'm, a, I'm a big fan of the, the and, 
understanding and, and reflecting uh, or, and, and or considering the, the systemic nature of things, um, which I know I want to, to come on to explore with you a little bit more later. Uh, I'd like to take a bit of a, a detour into um, um, into shame a little bit more, if, if that's okay. And, and in particular, it's around the um, the the potential association or the association that I've that I've made through some reading that I've done um, between shame and disclosure. And it was when you because it is when you um, you use the phrase when a mistake was exposed um, earlier on. And one of the things that um, one of the distinctions that I make in some of the work that I do is between, say, guilt and shame. So, uh, you know, and one of the things with shame that I often find is that the, the, the preference or the tendency when there's shame is to, is to hide that and actually to not disclose it and, and to keep that shame hidden um, or to keep the cause of that shame hidden um, rather than be something that, you know, that is uh, open or something that is disclosed or something that is openly talked about. And, and I, read, I read a lot in, in the kind of general... And this is an unfair generalization, but I'm going to make it anyway. I read a lot in the kind of the work, a lot of the workplace rhetoric around mistakes and how, you know, organizations should be embracing of mistakes and making it safe for people to make mistakes. And we need to create safe places where people can make mistakes in the right way. And, and theoretically, I get that and I support that because I think, you know, humans are fallible. That's what they, you know, us as human beings, we, we make mistakes all of the time. Um, and the, the more we hide those mistakes, the, 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 because of potentially because of shame, the harder it is then for individuals to learn, for organizations to learn, for teams to learn and so on. But there's almost like this, this kind of these two forces that are, that are almost pulling against each other, which is saying, you know, we want a culture where people can make mistakes and it's, and it's okay to do so, versus when somebody does make a mistake, they are often then, um, I can't remember the word that you used earlier on, but they're, they're kind of, they're exposed and they may be vilified or they may be kind of hung out to dry because of the mistake that they've made, when actually what they've done is they've just been human and, and they've made a mistake. So I guess I'm, I'm talking a lot and not really asking a question. So let me try and see if I can formulate a question in my head. In your experience, in the work that you've done, um, is unearthing shame a difficult task because people tend to hide it? Is that something that you find, I think, is my question? Yes, I think, uh, I mean, as a generalization, you can say that. I mean, my sense is, uh, and uh, maybe I always been quite simplistic in, in obviously for the sake of this discussion, but if you have an organization when the, where there is a good enough, I use good enough is uh, the term that's in, you know, um, mm -hmm. used by Winnicott, the psychoanalysts who talk about good enough parenting, but if you got a good enough management system that, you know, I think things usually, um, you know, uh, people are feel more able to um, uh, be open about mistakes. Interesting enough, in Joe's case, you know, it, there was a transition. He was with a new manager, so the relationship with uh, the trust relationship wasn't there, and and maybe the um, incoming the new uh, manager leader didn't understand what it meant to Joe, this uh, promotion. Mm. He didn't uh, um, 
understand it, the, the consequence that could have happened as a result of not getting the job. I mean, luckily he was in coaching and I think I'm not sort of uh, saying that he, he, I solved the situation, but mm -hmm. I helped him to go through what happened and try to unpack it rather than you know being completely paralyzed by that experience but i think good management good structure um are are key for a more transparent more open organization so, so if you go uh, beyond the cosmetic you know sort of mottos of organization but if you've got people who are managers who are psychologically present who are there for the people they manage. I mean, that makes a huge difference, I think. And I've always found that when is the case, you know, these um, difficulties can be overcome and, uh, and sometimes actually can bring something new or better. Mm. Okay. And, and then thinking about the recovery from shame side of things then. So, um, you know, I, I guess, um, you know, I, I talked earlier on about how my recovery from shame was fueled by anger at myself and, and the situation and, and wanting then to go and, you know, beginning my quest to find out more and just assimilate as much knowledge and information and skills as I could. What sort of things um, have you done or do you do with the, you know, with the individuals or organisations that you work with to support them with, you know, recovery from shame? Uh, the first of all is exactly what you did after the anger, which I completely understand because I, I had exactly the same reaction as you did when I was dropped from that course that I mm. was so angry towards organization. Then when you pass that sort of period in which you feel, you know, a really angry cross with whoever, you know, um, done something that you feel was unfair and so on, and then you, as a result, you felt, felt shamed. I think is, first of all, is acknowledging your part in it. Mm. So that there always is an element of you in terms of, you know, you might have a too high expectation, you might delude yourself about your um, uh, skills. Uh, There's always something that you contribute to the issue. So in a way, I think this is the first step. Mm -hmm. and not do what we say uh, in my trade the splitting so that you split you said and you know the organization is responsible or i am fully responsible that as i said at the beginning that is mm -hmm. a combination so it's really creating a space where you can um you know unpack that and see what is me what is organization what is my boss and uh, you know, uh, and then what realistically can be done about a situation? What, what is the bit that I can expect, but what are reasonable expectations about the other people involved? And it's sort of also coming back to reality, but it needs unpacking and also sometimes needs to connect in an individual to something that is deeper than that. As I was saying in the case of Joe, there was mm. something profound about his sense of worth because of very difficult background that he had. He had sort of um, very distant parents. He um, left home to go to university 
to never return back home, basically. So it was someone who, although he's done very well, he didn't have a firm base. And then so when something like that happened, you know, he felt much more troubled that maybe someone was, would have been more confident. Um, he might have sort of shaken that off and uh, considered that one of those things that happened, maybe a bit disappointed, but he wouldn't have felt so threatened. Mm. I don't know if I've answered your question. Yeah, you have. Yeah. So you said, <laughs> yeah, so the, so you, you know, it's the, un, the unpacking of the unpacking and acknowledging your part in it, acknowledging others parts in it and others I'm using in a, in a loose term that could be you know, individuals or the organization or um, you know, acknowledging you know, others parts in it and then thinking was the third step. Well, what realistically can be done then? So what realistically can be done to um, to improve or, or change or learn or make better or you know whatever that um, whatever the next steps might be. Uh, you also reminded me of a of a situation where I was working with a, of a senior team, and the, the 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 stimulus was or the stimulus of the story I guess is that one of the team um, uh, had a, a breakdown, for want of a better phrase, a breakdown in the workplace. Um, and, and needed some intensive help and support to, to get better um, uh, and to, to kind of get back to the point where they were they were fit again. And what I find really interesting, uh, and I, I can use the interesting frame looking back, I got really angry at the time actually, um, was a number of the other, a number of that, that, that number of the other members in that team and their colleagues said, oh, I, I saw this coming. You know, like I've seen them you know, I've seen them change physically over the last few weeks or and I've noticed this change in them, I've noticed that change in them, I've noticed they're doing this and I've noticed they're doing that, um, you know, and it's a shame they couldn't deal with it. And I was like, but you do realise that, that you, everything you've just outlined is in my head, you being complicit in the creation of this situation. You know, so you've noticed these changes in behaviours, you notice these changes in attitude, you notice these changes in appearance, and yet you did nothing with them. So, you know, we as a team need to now reflect about what's our role in this then? You know, what's, you know, what's our role in, 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 in this outcome that we have now? So the outcome we have is this person struggling and they need some help to, to get better. All right, but what's our role in it? And, and the team didn't want to face that. There's, there's not something they wanted to explore. And I said, well, no, because we, you know, we have a role to play in this as well. You know, we're that person's colleague, we're their, you know, we're their team and, and yet, individually you know so and 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 so you've said to me that you've noticed changes yet we've done nothing with that so yes we need that individual needs to make some changes but shortly we as a team have to do the same thing and that was a really tricky conversation to to navigate um because the, the you know again a risk of generalization but the, the team were really resistant or reluctant to engage in that discussion i i can't agree more and i think in in the is always so much linked and it's very interesting how people, organization, team members, leaders sometimes turn a blind eye and then uh, surprise, surprise, something happened. But in a way, everybody know that, knew that something was going on. They didn't want to see it. And, uh, um, and, uh, and I think to to acknowledge the link, to acknowledge that you are interconnected, that if we are someone working in an, in an organization, 
whatever happens to you is connected to a team, to your leader, to the whole organization, to the task. So it's, you, you can't just see an individual in his isolation, it's all connected. And um, so I completely agree with your perspective. I think that's is very important. And ideally is, um, uh, maybe I can come with a brief example. Please, yeah, yeah please do. Uh, I was, um, someone referred to me, um, um, a doctor who um, was um, <clears throat> accused of bullying and uh, basically they didn't suspend him but uh, they decided that he needed some coaching so it wasn't <laughs> sort of what we call an easy uh, mm -hmm. assignment because you yeah, feel yeah. this person um, you know what what can I do you know, it might be perceived as punishment but I think the work they tried to do was first of all again to try to see what was his responsibility what was his organizational responsibility but also uh, in my contract with the organization I said okay I'm prepared to see this individual and see what is behind uh, um, his behavior, but I want to be able to come back to you and tell you what I picked up uh, that the organization might have done differently or maybe some of the mistakes or systems opt in place. And luckily enough, in this case, the person was very open-minded. And so when I finished the work with this individual, I went back to the organization. I said, I think you should think about these issues, which are in a way belong to you, not to the individual. So mm -hmm. yeah, individual might have been a bit of a bully or might have, but also the organization has some responsibility for this. It's not always possible because often organization wants to dump you or uh, people who think they think they are a troubled individual and they create trouble but it's never just this story there are more stories more um way different ways of looking at that yeah definitely and, and that that dynamic um uh, i don't know what the word i'm looking for I feel like it should be nature, but I'm not necessarily, I don't think necessarily the, the right phrase that the, the, in, the interconnectedness, I think is, is something that, that is often overlooked. Um, and yeah, I think that's been, that's been a really useful exploration. Thank you. And, and, and thank you for sharing your, um, your example as well. It, and I, I guess just to close that, that last example off, if I can, is, um, so I, I've had similar discussions with um, with some clients that I work with when I've been doing, um, say for example, getting involved in some culture change work where I've, or organisational change work, where where I've been asked to come in and support the implementation of a, of a change initiative or a change program, um, and and when when I then um, to put it politely, when I rub up against um, some of the some of the systemic challenges within the organisation. Some clients seem to, you know, they're, they're more willing than others to want to listen to and, and explore some of those those systemic aspects that um, that uh, that I might rub up against, and and I suppose I'm putting myself in the listener's shoes now. Then and thinking, all right, then Phil and Francesca, you're you're saying that you know that these systemic aspects are important, but not necessarily organisations or teams want to hear about those systemic issues or those systemic aspects. 
how do I approach that then? How, how, do, how can I approach a conversation about some of the systemic aspects of, of an organization um, if the, if the organization doesn't want to hear it? And I know that wasn't necessarily a question that I said I was going to ask you in the podcast, but I just, I guess I was just thinking that if I was in the list of shoes, it might be useful to have maybe a couple of tactics or some techniques or some approaches that they could use to, if they had to, to, to address some of the systemic side of things, what might we, yeah, what might we recommend? So I guess that's a question to both of us, but I'll, I'll, I'll leave the, I'll leave the floor to you first. I think, uh, I mean, as, as in, all these things, there isn't a recipe, but I think what I would say to always have in mind that there is this other dimension and try, you know, to make it more visible for the people around you. So if this instead of, and and trying to um, pick up the this sort of uh, tendency of I think personalized issue in organization which I think is quite common unfortunately mm. and uh, um, and see that you know of course the person uh, sometimes has got a lot of responsibility for something that's happened but there is always a dimension that is wider and what we haven't referred to is uh, uh, of course the task of the organization is that sometimes it's very challenging, it's very difficult. So in a way, people become very defensive and uh, and they, they, they don't um, allow themselves to be you know, open and um, available. And there is the context of uh, around us, you know, mm. and that uh, um, is also important. Of course, you might intervene in an organization in, I mean, I was thinking, the time we're living now, you know, um, organization are under different kind of pressure. So that also has an impact. We are in a pandemic. Mm. Um, so all of that has a, a, an influence and, uh, and we are all affected, but all affected differently. Um, but so my, my suggestion, my only suggestion would be keep that dimension broader dimension alive and uh, and uh, don't put it in the sort of uh, um, aside but um, make it part of the conversation we're having if you are an em an employee if you are a leader of course if you are a consultant or a coach mm -hmm. uh so I, I agree with you there's no recipe um and, and there's no set format that, that i think you know you could take so i think my the things i would share then would be one um is to so one of my phrases that i use a lot is there's, there's always more going on than you think there's always something else there's always more to it it's never as simple as as, as you think it is because that's you know, again as humans we like to make things simple we like to um to quote one of my friends a guy called cliff lansley we are cognitive misers you know we're, we're, we're cognitively lazy if we can find a shortcut then we will find if we can find a shortcut and a simple answer we'll find the shortcut and the simple answer um and, and so using that as a way to, to engage a conversation, say, well, what else could be going on or what else is going on or what else could it, you know, what else is at play, what else could be happening is, is a way of coming at it. And then 
you know, we could, you know, and then coming into the three steps that you talked about earlier on, you know, acknowledging what's, what's the individual's part, what's the organization's part, what's the team's part and so on could be, could be one way of doing it. And I think my, my other one, and I'm, I'm now thinking I've been primed by your detective, um, uh, analogy that you used earlier on but is to, to is to have some evidence to support the um you know the, the possible connections that you're making so one of the things i noticed when i was working with a, a different organization is um so i, I was there on a, on a fairly long-term assignment so i was doing three days a week for for nearly two years and one of the things that i noticed was that mondays could be really hit and miss so Mondays is a day in the office. Monday was my always my office day. So um, I always committed I'd do two, you know, kind of one one definite day in the office a week, which is always a Monday, because Monday was meetings day. I never got any work ever done. I just did meetings all day. I'd ended up with a longer to do this at the end than the beginning. But anyway, um, and then I'd have a day at home, and then I'd have a third, my third day of the week would either be in the office or at home, depending on where I needed to be. And I kept finding that my Mondays could be really hit or miss. And the pattern that I deduced was depending on the, the behaviours that were displayed by the senior team in the meeting room that happened, because there was a meeting room in the office that was the last ward, so every, you know, everybody could see it. And depending on, on how that meeting went and ended, seemed to correlate with whether my Mondays could be a hit or miss day. Um, because when it went well and they had had a good meeting, then they tended to be a hit day. And when the, those meetings went poorly and they had a bad meeting, then it tended to be a missed day. And what I noticed was that it, emotions would emanate, or you know, they'd almost kind of come out in waves from the meeting room. So as people were arriving into the office, they would see that the senior team was sat down around this table and they'd be watching, maybe not like watching, you know, like they're watching a TV, but they'd be noticing what was happening and noticing how, how people were interacting with each other when when they were talking and then when the meeting would end you know again you they would you'd notice how how different people left the, the meeting you know did they storm out and stomp down the office and get their head down at the desk or did they stop and say hello to people on the way and uh, and some of those things so uh, and the conversation i had with the team was was kind of almost presenting my case maybe in a bit like of a Columbo way maybe because I was a bit clumsy <laughs> and yes yes but, but to say you know this is this is what I notice you know when I notice that you know on these different occasions these things have happened and then this has been the, the feeling in the office that day and on these other days these things have happened and this has been the feeling in the office on those days and you know and to what extent are you aware that the way that you guys interact and and, and how you kind of how you are with each other then resonates out into the office um and, and they had no awareness at all. And you know, some of them just said, oh, I don't think that's right, Phil. And I said, well, maybe it's not, but, you know, this could just be my view, but you know, this based on what I'm noticing and what I'm, you know, what I'm picking up on, this is what, you know, this is what I think. Um, so the, we, we then changed the strategy and we moved the location of the meeting. So I said, well, can we just, you know, can we move the meeting? Instead of you doing the meeting in that office where you normally do it, can we do it somewhere else? So because there was a, a number of different teams within the organization. So by moving the, the senior teams meeting from one room to a different to a room in a different part of the office meant that, the, that nobody else saw what was going on. You know, so if they were having the meeting where the, you know, where the marketing team is, nobody in marketing cares about this, this senior leadership team meeting. So nobody's really watching them or paying any attention. And what it meant was they were they were then much more kind of even Mondays after that. There wasn't this this spiking, these this up and downness of the of the, you know, of, of kind of how people felt that day. It was really it was really interesting to um to see and experience. Sorry, go on. 
No, very good. And I think, uh, I mean, the thing about evidence is very, very important. And I, it's one of the things I teach as well as do consultancy. Um, I and my colleague, we always talk about uh, evidence to, before formulating hypotheses about what is our understanding of what is going on. And I think accumulating evidence that helped you to, you know, give a, a you know, in a way, well-informed <laughs> response of input, you know, and, and looking for those, I mean, is, is, um, is I think, is quite essential. Mm. And I liked your story. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> um, all right. So I, I think what I'd like to, to, to do, if it's okay, is to start to kind of bring us together um, and, and start to kind of bring the, the podcast to a close, if that's all right. There's one area that I wanted to to explore a, a little bit more because um, we talked about the shame side of things a lot. And in your in your preceding chapter to shame, you talk about um, vulnerable leadership. Um, and I know there's a there's a quite a popular um, kind of researcher. Um, uh, and practitioner out there, a lady called Brené Brown, and she talks about the links of, of vulnerability and shame. And and I wondered because um, you you know those two those two chapters kind of follow each other. So you've got vulnerable leadership as a as a pre, as a preceding one, and then shame as the one that follows. And I guess um, how how do you see vulnerability and shame going together? I think is the question I wanted to ask before I then start to bring us together and close off the podcast, if that's okay. Um. I think uh, uh, I think vulnerability is uh, can apply both to individuals, leaders, and organizations. So Ooh, I think you okay. might feel vulnerable, um, and then, in a way, I think I referred to it earlier. You might be much more, in a way, exposed or prone to shame, because mm. if you are someone who um, you know, has, uh, you know, an inner sort of strength, but also a, a quite robust sense of your identity. Mm. And, and I could <laughs> talk at length about, you know, um, the, the, the sense of, of course, of attachment. Um, you know, you are someone who has has experienced as a as a child a strong attachment, and then you are able later on in life to, you know, feel um, uh, worth and uh, um, uh, strong in your identity. So you're less vulnerable to mm. shame. People who are um, don't have that and I've I for different reasons you know mm -hmm. uh, you might feel much more likely to experience shame in the way I was describing in a more paranoid way in which mm. this is, you see it um, whatever happened is an attack on to to you and to your identity well if you are a, a, um you know, you have a, you're more confident in your, in, in who you are, you course your experience indifferently. And that applies to organization, because if you have an organization that on the whole is quite solid and uh, has got a, 
a quite robust management structure. And I think I make a comparison to, you know, uh, leaders as sort of uh, almost parents of organizations. So in a way, mm -hmm. leaders who can take up a parental role, parental inverter commas, of course, in relation mm -hmm. to staff. So they can, um, you know, be reliable and people can rely on them. And of course, you know, it is less likely to happen, but that doesn't mean that doesn't happen, but the consequence mm. of it are less uh, um, strong or less disruptive. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, uh, now days, of course, uh, um, shame, you are shamed in, in the media, in the news. Mm. I have um, a client, for example, has been, um, he has been, you know, named in, in, uh, um, in the media, and that is quite devastating because you know you, you're not talking about the public of my example, mm. um, Joe example, because that was within the organization. But if you are exposed, for example, outside, really, you know, where you know millions of people, yeah, uh, that's that's really difficult. But again, if you've got an organization that can support you that can be minimized if you're someone on the whole feels that quite confident in your skills, in your work, and you might, you know, you might find it difficult, but you can recover. Hmm. But if you're someone who is less confident and, and feel more vulnerable inside, um, that might be really problematic. Wonderful, thank you, Francesca. That was a very nice summary. I liked that. That was good. Thank you. Um, okay. So what I'd like to do then is um, is to, to bring us together, I think. And so one of the ways that I tend to wrap up the podcast then is to um, ask um, around any kind of books or, or resources. So maybe kind of you know, books as well as your own, of course, which I'll put a link to in the show notes. Are there any books or videos or talks or research papers that you think um, it would be good for the listeners to go and have a read of or to look at? But apart from my book, <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the book in, in my kind of world that has been really seminal mm. is uh, The Unconscious at Work, um, which um, is called The Tavistock Approach to Making Sense of Organizational Life and is edited okay. by Anton Opolzer and Vega Roberts and is published by Routledge. And mm -hmm. it was a first edition in uh, 1994, <laughs> but now wow. there's okay. a new edition um, uh, that has a section on, uh, um, the first edition was mainly aimed for people working in the you know, caring profession, health sector. Mm -hmm. The second edition um, has, uh, uh, has got a section, quite a rich one, for uh, um, people working in the uh, sort of private sector in business. Oh, wonderful. So that's, I would say, is the most obvious. And one of the quality of this book is that it's very accessible, it's written in plain English, and mm. very clear, and, uh, and I think there are a lot of vignettes, a lot of cases. So, um, so I certainly think is, is something to recommend um, to a lot of people. Wonderful. Thank you. I'll make sure I put a, a link to that one as well as your book in the show notes then. Uh, anything else? Um, um, I think um, 
Um, I, I mean, you know, I didn't expect this question. So that's, I mean, there are lots of books that are, are, are of interest. Um, but I think this is the one, I mean, the other, there is another one, um, I think it's called um, Working Below the Surface, is again uh, done okay. by a group of colleagues um, in the um, Tavisto tradition, and it's, okay. it's a very interesting book as well. Okay. Um, I had in mind, because I thought you said that you might, I, you might want to some recommendation also for people to invite. On oh, your yes, please. Yes, please. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so one is um, Vega Roberts that I mentioned, who is mm -hmm. a, a colleague who is the co-author of the unconscious of work. And the other one is, uh, which is relevant to your uh, podcast, is a clinical psychologist who is now an author and writer. She's wrote this wonderful novel mm -hmm. called A Good Enough Mother and um, published by Favor and Faber mm -hmm. uh, also last year, 2019, and is the story of, um, I would say, the interconnection between um, personal and professional life of uh, Ruth, who is a um, psychologist, psychotherapist, and what happens, the complexity of life at work and also at home in terms of a personal life. And it's sort of a thriller, but not a thriller, a real thriller, okay. but in terms of, uh, you know, um, in a way, your podcast, Emotional at Work, I think. Yeah, <laughs> Wonderful. That's fantastic. I, I will I will look out both of those people. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, and uh, if people wanted to, if people wanted to get hold of you, Francesca, to to find out some more, is there a, is there a way that you would like them to do so? Um, I could put a you know, link in. I could put a link to your website in the show notes. Would that be the easiest way for if people wanted to get hold of you and find out some more for them to do so? Yes, I think the obvious way would be through my website where there is my email and also um, LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn. Okay. Uh, so there are the, 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 so the two public spaces. So I would like to hear okay. from uh, um, anyone who is interested to continue the conversation. Um, yes, that would be great. All right, I'll do that. Then I'll put a link to the website and, um, and, to, link, and to your LinkedIn profile as well and I think all that remains then is for me to say is there anything else then Francesca anything else that you're thinking feeling or want to say before I close us off um I think I've enjoyed this conversation very much I mean I felt a bit anxious as obviously because you know I'm not used to the interview yeah but, um um it's sort of preparing and doing it made me think a little bit differently about some sort of what, what I wanted to what I've done and what um, I wanted to say. Um, and maybe the key thing is uh, in conversation with you is this mm. constant, uh, you said, what else? Mm. And I was thinking a constant interplay between things, you know, yes. individual environment, organization, personal, professional, what else is there? Mm. So I think that's uh, and and is an invitation not just to your listeners but to myself, you know, to 
try to do that, which I try to do, but you know, to be reminded is, I think, is important. And thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much for coming on. I've, I've really, really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been great to have you as a guest, Francesca. Thank you so much for coming on the Emotional World podcast. My pleasure. You've been listening to the Emotion at Work podcast and if you got this far, you must be interested in the role that emotions have in the workplace either within individuals, between people in teams or in organisations as a whole. So head over to the Emotion at Work hub which you can find at community.emotionatwork.co.uk Thanks for listening.